So we are now, we are in the middle of um, book two, sutra number 32. And we are in the second paragraph of point number three of that sutra, which is, the sutra is the niyamas of observances consist of purity, contentment, austerity, which is parentheses, accepting but not causing pain, self-study, parentheses, introspection, and openness to higher truths. And we are at number three, which is austerity. And we spent all last week on the first paragraph of number three, which was recorded and can be reviewed, so I'm not going to summarize it here. Um, So the second, we start talking about the part where it says, to accept pain unflinchingly takes willpower, but it also takes mental detachment from the body. And then he says, to develop this ability starts small, um, cold water, bad tasting food, and accepting insults without being inwardly affected. Tell jokes about yourself. When people laugh at you, laugh with them. Um, And then he says, benevolence is the best way to overcome any pain received, even physical. And the last sentence of the first paragraph was um, to accept that austerity is most safely practiced then in a spirit of benevolence, of wanting to bless everybody. Benevolence seems to be the word that he's pairing with austerity, which is very interesting. Benevolence is the best way to overcome any pain received, yes, even physical ones. For a benevolent feeling toward your body lessens or even eliminates any pain felt there. And benevolence is also a way, obviously so, of overcoming any impulse to cause pain in others. Well, we're going to have to... Swamiji's writing in this particular, both of these paragraphs, is extremely interesting. I am not really sure, and probably some of you are going to help us figure out tonight, why a benevolent attitude towards your body helps you not feel physical pain. Sort of an interesting question. And we can probably start with what we do understand, which is benevolence uh, is also a way of overcoming any impulse to cause pain to others. Um, I, I'm partly thinking that in a benevolent state is a relaxed, a relaxed state. It's an accepting state. So much of pain, even physical pain, is mental. You know, our anxiety about it, our wish that it wasn't happening, our uh, sense of victimization when things go wrong, whether it's either mentally or physically, when something happens and we immediately want... There, we always want there to be it to be somebody's fault. I mean, it's the most amazing phenomenon that we have all experienced about wanting it to be somebody's fault. And that idea in our minds, so perhaps even just feeling sympathetic and soft toward our own physical body. Oh, you poor thing. Remember how St. Francis and all his physical austerities would always refer to his body as Brother Donkey? That it, it wasn't, he didn't, he didn't call it his own. He called it this poor donkey that had to be carried around and had to do all this work. And he always felt very soft and kindly toward it. But he also never identified it as himself. He always thought of it as something slightly separate. That's, uh, last week I was joking about the expression which I really like, which is, the devil made me do it. 
which is a joking sort of slight way to be just slightly impersonal about yourself and just always be sort of seeing things just from that little bit of remove where it doesn't become um, so intensely personal that our whole identification is with what's going on. Benevolence also, as I was saying, it's a, it's a state of relaxation. I mean, so often I, I had an experience when I was alone in our house at Ananda Village one night. I guess, I think David was out of town. And I dropped a flashlight square on my foot. Actually, you know, the, how the little foot makes a little bump. I have a little bump still where I dropped that flashlight on my foot. And it, it really hurt. And I thought maybe I'd actually injured myself badly, but in any case, I called the clinic, the uh, Nanda clinic at the village there. And Jack Wallace was working there at the time, and he answered the phone. And Jack is a delightful person to talk to and a very good friend of mine. So I, I told him what I had done, and he must have known what the right questions were to ask to determine whether I'd broken anything or not. And we quickly determined that there was nothing really seriously wrong with me. But I finally just realized that I just wanted somebody to feel sorry for me because I was there all alone, and there was nobody to feel sorry for me. So Jack, of course, has a, is a great actor in addition to other qualities, and he just went into this hugely exaggerated... Um, sense of sympathy for this terrible disaster that had happened to me, and I just drank all of it in. And as soon as he was finished, my foot didn't hurt so much. <laughs> and it wasn't really long enough to have dulled the pain. But there was, I was laughing. I wasn't anxious anymore. I was appreciating the transitory nature of all of life. I was exaggerating my own emotions, as Swamiji has often trained us to do, he would, he would very often make fun of attitudes that we might hold seriously. I always remember there was this woman who shall remain nameless who had a, an over-exaggerated romantic attitude toward life. This was when we were all young and unmarried. And Swami sang at least a whole verse of love as a many-splendored thing to her in such a way that you would be mortified ever, ever to even listen to that song again. <laughs> it was just way over the top. But he just, you know, did the, the Perry Como crooner, just the whole thing, because he knew she was vulnerable to taking those feelings seriously. And so after that, you know, it's just a little hard to go there when you really want to go there. And oftentimes, really, since that conversation with Jack, when something goes wrong with me, I, I remember. I just want somebody to feel sorry for me. It's not even like this is a bad injury. But that benevolence, this is where I was actually going to, you know, benevolence can um, take away even physical pain. You just have a kindly attitude. Oh, you poor thing. Oh, look at you. You're all broken now. You know, you've been working so hard. That's how uh, St. Francis f- calling his body Brother Donkey it was this poor, hard-working thing that just never got a break. And he was always asking more of it. But he, was, he, 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 didn't, he didn't let up. But nonetheless, he was grateful to Brother Donkey for all that it allowed him to do. Yes, Nishikama? A lot of this, uh, the distinction is between um, whether you identify with the other or not. And it's always 
you're distancing yourself by not being preoccupied with yourself at all, and you're going out of your way to distance yourself. And that's what the, the common thread, I think, through all these benevolences is, perhaps. That's exactly right. You're, you're, you're distancing yourself, but sympathetically, not harshly. Oh, you poor thing, you really, you know, but you're not letting yourself off the hook. And this is where Swamiji says, um, you know, to develop the ability to do this, start in little ways. Place food in your mouth and try not to taste it. Take a cold shower and don't let the cold affect you. Willingly accept insults from others, but don't be inwardly affected by anything they say. I mean, some of us don't have to go out and seek trouble, but if our lives are too soft, we can uh, try it a little bit. I, I mean, I'm very... I mean, the idea of the cold shower... I've tried it for seconds, and that's about how long I can last in a cold shower. <laughs> but I try it in other ways. But it's a very good practice, yes. The benevolence, if you practice it towards yourself in the cold shower, then there's not two things happening. It's just you're kind to yourself, you're kind to your body, and you're just cold. Yeah, and you're just cold. Yeah. There, there's and nothing so there's, else going on. There's no, there's no two things right. involved. If you're flagellating yourself or you're doing something, you know, I'm doing austerities, it's me and an other. And, uh-huh. you know, the, the feeling is that it's just happening, you're kind to your body, and you're just doing something like this. You distance yourself from it. I know exactly. Um, Trisha's behind you. Yeah. Uh, slightly different tack. Um, some people have kind of an adversarial relationship to their bodies yes, that's a very or they're continually breaking down and it's really hard to stay benevolent. I have a question about somebody who might have had a benevolent, loving, caretaking attitude towards her body, young woman who was then injured in childbirth rather badly, and it continues, who has told me twice that she, she, her body betrayed her. And... Uh, what would you recommend to getting back to wow. benevolence towards the body if one has lost trust in one's body? No, that's, I mean, people often say that. Your body gets cancer. I mean, you depended on it, and now it's not working for you. Okay, so you have distanced yourself from it because it's something else that's doing it to you. But you see what we're really talking about. It's, it's not your body. It's your karma. So this goes back to what we come back to over and over again, which is no matter how it appears on the surface, karma is always fair. Or could this be happening outside the will of God? Uh, what, what karmic response is this bringing out of me that therefore these attitudes are being drawn out of me and these attitudes are um, limiting my happiness and how can I overcome these attitudes? Um, We were talking, some of us, earlier today about the forecasts and the progression from being a Shudra. I think I actually was saying this here, being a Shudra, being a Vaishya, a Kshatri, and a Brahmin. And the Vaishya imagines that suffering can be alleviated by having all external conditions to my liking. And the Kshatriya realizes that it is impossible from the ego's perspective to, to make everything conform. And so one recognizes that the only, the only possibility of happiness in this world, what to speak of security and safety, is self-mastery. So 
I presume that when the body ceases to cooperate with you, and it certainly doesn't meet the expectations of the ego's idea of what it ought to be doing, then one is in an extremely challenging karmic condition as to whether or not I can change circumstances or whether I have to change my attitude towards circumstances. And it's a... I have to speak of it as a theory because it's not a test that I have faced in this lifetime of really having to understand that everything happens for a reason and that that reason is good. But I think a challenge to your very capacity to move through the world or the necessity to have to move through the world in continual pain would be an Olympic event. But to to say that it's exceedingly difficult, it's almost like you're absolutely trapped because there's no way to get away from it. Um, I had a a medical procedure done, not, you know, at, at one point, and it wasn't done quite properly, and so it was about 15 minutes of extreme discomfort. Well, pain is the only word for it. It was extremely painful, and it wasn't meant to be painful, but it was a... Um, I, I didn't realize it, the physician didn't realize that what was happening to me shouldn't have been happening. And it was just... Uh, I don't think I, I passed very well, but it was really interesting to me. I was almost... I was about to throw up from, you know, the pain of it, and, wow, what do you do? It was a very um, uh, sobering experience to realize how dependent we are on this body simply operating in a certain way. I think it, it, that would fall exactly into Mother Teresa of Calcutta's statement that God never sends us more than we can handle, but she responded by saying, I, sometimes I wish he didn't have so much faith in me. And so it's just an extreme level of inescapable um, necessity to accept. Because God doesn't make mistakes, that would be the only um, comfort. Remember, I saw a little snippet of a documentary that NBC or CBS News or something was going to determine once and for all whether there was a connection between mind and body when people got cancer. And so they decided to do that by interviewing cancer patients and getting their opinions and then adding them up. And they interviewed some lady who was in the hospital with some form of cancer, and he said, you know, what do you think? Do you, you know, think that your own attitudes are responsible for this illness? Her answer was, hell no. It's bad enough that I have cancer. I'm not going to be responsible for it, too. <laughs> Which I thought was, uh, yeah. But it's, it's a hard thing to think that somehow this is happening for the right reason. You know, he uses the word benevolence. I think the word surrender, but perhaps the word self-offering might be a better word, which is just this is, you know, this is what God has given me and I have to offer myself into this experience uh, with kindness and just recognize that it's just... Who knows? I remember when... uh, Swami's Guru Bhai Norman was suffering from such intense depression and he came into Swami's uh, dorm room and sat on his bed and he was so depressed, just, you know, that, that deep, super heavy depression and Norman was a really big man, so when that big man was really depressed, he was really depressed. 
And Swami tried to cheer him up by saying, you know, well, how bad can it be? How long can it last? 40, 50 years? Meaning eventually we'll die and it'll be over. That did not comfort Norman. (laughs) Swami thought that that was a really positive perspective, but as he said, Norman ran screaming from the room. (laughs) When Swamiji was having a very tough period of bad health, and uh, we were in a CC, we were just taking a very short walk, and I just said sort of, you know, with sympathy, how are you, sir? Compared to eternity, he said, just fine. And that was really, sometimes I think about that. Compared to eternity, well, we're just fine. In the moment, no, it's not so pleasant. Yeah, it's, it's a big test, and a lot of people face it, whether they face it at the end of life or at the beginning of life. Yeah, it's a really big test. It, it develops compassion. Most, many tests develop compassion for you, become very sympathetic to other people's weaknesses. Anything else? All right. Um, it's also a way of overcoming any impulse to cause pain in others. Uh, he says benevolence is a way to... What we have to realize is that... I mean, I, I think it, this is the relationship here. The more one suffers oneself, if you suffer sensitively and not with anger... You know, see, some people who suffer don't go there. They, instead, they just start lashing out at everyone. You know, often they say that those people who abuse their children were abused as children. That they themselves suffer and then for some strange reason they just turn that pain on to someone else. But the more benevolent, the more compassion we feel for ourselves, the more... You know, this is actually, this is an interesting point about lessening the physical pain. Because benevolence is also compassion. The more compassion we feel just in the larger reality for the fact of suffering certainly makes us much more gentle with other people. I certainly know that the effect of certain very hard periods that I had to go through was it radically changed my attitude toward everyone else. You know, when, you, when you find yourself helpless, then you're a lot um, less quick to think that other people ought to get their act together. You know, when you've always got your story together and other people don't, it's easy to be very um, impatient. But when you find yourself helplessly embroiled in something that no matter how much you want to, you can't change it, then when you see someone else in that condition, um, you feel benevolent, you feel compassionate toward them. So perhaps that's also why physical pain would become less. There's just a sort of softening around all the edges. I mean, a lot of pain is tension. I mean, and, and the resistance to it. Things ought to be other than they are. Remember how Swami tells the story about overcoming seasickness when he had to come back uh, from uh, the island in Australia and the ship was so in completely rough and he realized that a lot of his... Uh, tendency towards seasickness was that whichever way the ship went he was always wishing it wasn't going that way and so there you somebody put it this way I don't have a rubber band in my hand but if life is, t- is going this way but you're determined that it not then you create a lot of tension between those two points if life is going this way and you just go with it then at least there's no tension because you're following it wherever it goes And even in the physical body, that tension um, causes much more pain. 
It's just you, you hold yourself against it. Um, whenever you've ever had a massage and they find one of those horrible places and begin to push on it, or even worse, acupressure, one of those shiatsu, one of those terrible, torturous kind of treatments that you pay money for. You know, it's just, it's just like uh, the more you push it back, the, the worse it is until you finally actually you're, you're writhing in pain just remembering it yeah so, so benevolence towards yourself is sort of the same thing you're pushing against what is and at least you're creating this mental pain remember also when Swami talked about being burned at the stake in his dream and that he just didn't have any resistance to that happening if that was what was going to happen that was fine and almost everyone else would suffer so much in anticipation of what was about to happen. All that tension of anticipation that even the moment of burning would only be a very small part of all the fear that would be in your heart before that. So compassion, kindness, all of that alleviates that. Those are thoughts. Did you have a question? Yeah. There was, there's been times um, in the past when I've had a problem with some other person, like an irritation or resentment, like maybe in a work environment. And I was taught a practice when I feel that way because it causes a pain inside me to start praying for that other person and just envisioning them to have everything I would want for myself, happiness, health, love, security. And as I made that a practice and praying for that person daily over a period of time and actually projecting those feelings of benevolence toward them, it really changed things inside me. Not only did that pain go away, but I just felt a lightness and a goodness and a happiness and the relationship invariably changed too in a positive way so I can just really see from that perspective I can just really see the benevolence being transformative you know in terms of the pain that's a very good example because it, we all know it does work emotionally and interpersonally and since we are simply in relationship to our bodies we are not actually our bodies the same principles of relationship would apply. And that must have been what Swamiji was picking up when he said that. We're, yeah, go ahead. Then just along those same lines, when I felt compassion towards other people, uh-huh. then I've noticed also I felt more compassion toward myself. Yes, it's really exactly. reciprocal. It, it runs both ways. If you're too harsh with yourself, you're harsh with others. It was interesting. A friend of, I, a friend of mine and I both had problems um, I'll just I'll try to say in the past, certainly in our 20s, um, we were both judgmental toward others. And he, he, he taught us, and I don't even remember which one he said, but he told one of us to stop judging ourselves and he told the other one to stop judging others. It was like we had the same personality characteristics, but we were going to solve it. The source point was different. And it was, it, I've always remembered that that he, he, he told us both to solve the same problem, but in opposite ways. You just start where you can get access to it. I, I remember an experience I've shared with you all. The circumstances were crazy. Um, David and I had learned to scuba dive, which we did for a few years until we both confessed to each other that it scared us too much and we didn't do it anymore. But the first, um, between the first time we went scuba diving and then the second time we went, which was like a whole year, and it was time to, to go again, and we wanted to do it, and I did too, but I was very, very nervous, just incredibly nervous. 
And I mean, I had stomach pains. I was really nervous. And I was seasick when we went out in the boat, just all nerves. But I was praying for relief. And there was no sympathy forthcoming. And I sort of said to Divine Mother, why aren't you being nicer to me? Look how I'm suffering. And she put in front of me the image of a person that I had no patience for. And it was just like, and it was a one-to-one relationship. This person was suffering and you didn't have any sympathy for, for them. So now you're suffering and too bad. And it was more like, but it was more subtle than that. It was because I failed to have compassion, I had created a universe in which suffering exists and no compassion comes. You see what I mean? It wasn't even just a karmic return. It was like there was a universe I lived in where suffering people don't get compassion. So when I was suddenly the suffering person, there was no compassion for me either because in my universe it didn't exist. Wow. That was, it, was, it was, of course, worth the whole thing just to see that. I came back, I was so nice to that person. They must have wondered, what the heck happened, you know? This became my best buddy. <laughs> Big lesson. Well, in the Bible, as you sow, so shall you reap. Judge not, lest you be judged. It's, very, it's a very exact mathematical thing. There's no God up there distributing you know, favors or not favors. We live in a, 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 a balanced, inter, interwoven universe. And you, you pull the string over here and you create a knot and then you create tension over here. And you, you sort of travel down the line and you've forgotten that you, that you pulled it here, but all of a sudden you're in this tight web on this side. I mean, it, it's not... Um, well, the fact is, it's easy to get out of. Just admit, like he says, he, he tells us, you know, the virtues are few, and just pay attention to them. And then, when we are being made miserable by life circumstances, be benevolent toward our own suffering, which you see also, there's another word to benevolent. You see, you're not judgmental toward your own suffering. That's another word for, for benevolence. You're not judging yourself. You're not saying you're a terrible person. I must have done something awful in the past. Why am I always like this? None of those things. You're just very benevolent toward it. Oh, you poor sap. Look at you doing the wrong thing again. And I think that's also part of it. All of that creates softness. And it also, you see, it doesn't resist the karma. And what did Jesus say? If he slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Step into the karma instead of shrinking away from it. And, you know, benevolence, you, you don't shy away from it. So this is happening to me. My, 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 must be a lesson I need. I'm not fond of it, but, well, there you have it. I mean, it's not easy, believe me, to hold that attitude at all. But when we calm down enough and can think clearly, we can at least try it. Yeah. And when we lose our center, we at least know where our center is and can come back to it. Okay, any other questions? All right. So, I, it is, you know, Master says, Master is one of his instructions for raising children, which is, every time I tell this one, I always have to sort of put a big caveat on this, be careful. He says, don't always satisfy the desires of your children. And then he actually says, when they're hungry, don't feed them right away. When they're cold, don't run and get a sweater. Just let them tough it out a little bit. Don't train them to think that every little nuance of their 
reality is going to be adjusted by someone. Now, of course, you can't do that unless you yourself have a little bit of... And you have to do it kindly. You have to make it fun. You know, what can we do instead of just rushing to get a sweater? How can we enjoy the cold? How long can we stand out here in the snow before we have to go in and get our hats? It it's, uh, needs to be said in the proper way. What can we do to distract ourselves from being hungry? But it's interesting because, the, you know, child-rearing is so much the opposite. In fact, I just read something recently about how we're not really helping our children by teaching them that every single little discomfort is going to be immediately eased when, in fact, a little toughness serves you well. Very fine lines, but worth knowing. Same with ourselves. Oh dear, we're just not going to get to eat right now even though I know you're hungry. You know, I know you're cold, but the sweater's over there. We'll get it in a few minutes. Hmm. I have a friend who's in prison and oftentimes when some tiny little thing makes me uncomfortable and I'm going to rush and fix it, I imagine, wow, he's not able to fix anything, is he? He can't, he can't change the temperature, he can't go outside when he wants to, he has no refrigerator, nothing. You know, and he lives. Lots of people live like that. What would happen if? What if it really wasn't within my power to shift this? It's just a way to play with your mind um, in a positive way. Austerity. By the grace of God, you know, most of us don't have overwhelming austerities, but we might as well push ourselves a little in that direction. At Ananda Village at the beginning, people were... We used to play with all this a lot more, and mostly we went way too far. I never did. I was chicken, like total, total wuss in that respect. But, you know, there were the barefoot and the snow people, but I wasn't one of them. Okay. Let's see. Then Swami, okay, now we come to Swadaya, which Swamiji tells us is sometimes translated to mean study of the scriptures, but he points out that Swa actually means self, and what it is that's supposed to be studied is our self. And he says he makes a distinction between introspection and self-awareness, which um, it's really interesting because Awareness is really different than analysis because awareness is being awake in the moment. I remember I, when I was beginning to travel away from Ananda Village, one of the first cycles of uh, giving classes that I did was we had centers in Sacramento, San Francisco, and Palo Alto. And I started this cycle of, uh, on Sunday, I would go down to Sacramento, I would teach on Monday in Sacramento on Tuesday, in San Francisco on Wednesday here in Palo Alto, and then I'd go back to Ananda Village. And I would teach the same topic in all three cities. And because I'm extemporaneous in response to what's going on in the room, I had a certain sort of cycle that I was running because I was newer and I didn't just sail out as randomly as I do now. But nonetheless, every class was entirely different because all three cities, all three audiences varied so much one from another, it was impossible to offer the same exact class in each place. After I finished the first three classes, I realized, how am I going to remember anything that I said? How am I going to pick, up, pick it up the next time? Or maybe I remembered before I started. So I asked Swamiji, sir, because he did that all the time. He would teach, when he was making Ananda, building Ananda, he taught five or six nights a week, every night in a different city. And he was teaching the same sequence, but 
in a different city every time, then he'd have to pick it up, exactly the same issue. I said, how do you do it? He says, oh, by being fully conscious while you're doing it. And, you know, and, what's the rest of the answer? But it was very interesting to me, oh, by being fully conscious while you're doing it. And then it makes an impression. And it makes an impression, and actually, surprisingly, I couldn't remember when I was at home, but when I was standing back in the spot where it had happened, it would all come back to me. And I found it much easier than I thought it was. So what Swami's talking about when he says self-awareness versus mere introspection is to be awake while we're living. And not just sort of afterwards try to analyze what happened, but really be present in the now. Everything comes to the eternal now. Sooner or later it goes back to the center of the circle. And so he suggests, as a, as a, just as a simple practice, observe the behavior of others. He said not in a judgmental way, but just see how other people behave, see what they're doing. And of all things he mentions, listen to the way people laugh. And he gives a little description of all the different ways people laugh and asking us to be conscious of, of who you are and what that might mean. I heard a voice on, the, on a television recently. It was a, an investment guy. And I guess he was a pretty hotshot investment guy because he was being interviewed on television. He had a voice. I, it's like he had a voice. I don't know if I can even imitate it. He sounded like about a 13-year-old girl. Yeah, he just, he just had a little tiny bit of a voice. Very high. I mean, maybe there was a certain... Maybe he had his voice vocal cords removed or something, but it didn't really sound like a surgically created voice. It just sounded, I listened to him and I was with David when I heard it, I said, what kind of a consciousness would create a voice like that in a grown man? Because it was like one quarter of what you would expect. It's squeaky, like almost like, almost comedic, except that it wasn't. And a lot of times, you know, Swamiji says that, listen to the sound of your own voice, listen to the inflections, listen to your own laugh, just be aware. How am I responding to things? Why am I responding? I remember once in a, we were sitting at uh, the breakfast table in our house in the community here, and Swamiji was at the table with us, and there was, there would often be like, I'm going big like this, because there would often be 12 or so at the table. Sometimes it would be a big entourage when uh, Swami was there. And Swamiji made a serious suggestion, I won't give the details about it, but he, he gave a serious suggestion to one man at the table, but it was a very teasable suggestion. And all of us just kind of jumped into the fray and started making light of what Swamiji had suggested. But we noticed after a moment that Swamiji was completely uninvolved. And it's not like Swamiji never teased us or never laughed but he absolutely did not participate. And then when all the laughter died down, he renewed the suggestion in a completely serious voice. And we were not so stupid that we didn't notice at that point. Because he realized that our laughter was hurtful and he simply was not going to be part of it. You know, sometimes laughter is good, sometimes laughter isn't. But I was so aware at the moment of just like how unaware we were. We just got carried away in the moment with what was happening. Everybody was laughing and nobody was stopping to think, how is this really, you know, do I really want to be part of this? 
And so self-awareness is a state of consciousness. And so when he's talking about self-study, it's not just, although it is valuable because the whole Bhagavad Gita is about this, after the battle is over, then you do go home and you say, between the Kauravas and the Pandavas, between the angelic and the Mayak forces, who won today? And it's worth asking that question. But it's also worth knowing as we go along, where, where has my consciousness been today? Who have I been? When I was really trying to overcome a very um, unwholesome response that I would have to life, uh, when people didn't agree with me sometimes, and I saw decisions going in ways that I didn't want them to go, I am so attached to my own ideas that I would feel that if my ideas were rejected, I might suffocate and die. I mean, it, it was exaggerated, but nonetheless, that's how I felt. You know, I can give you all the karmic explanations or whatever it might have been, but I do not like to be subject to other people's authority. Simple as that. I like it my way, and prefer it preferably now, just my way. But I honestly felt that if my ideas were not accepted, that I would die. And so, I mean, that's how I exaggerated in my mind. And I called it the panic survival response. That when things were not going my way, I would panic and just try to make them go my way. And always, my voice would get thinner and higher. And instead of just being able to explain, and faster. You know, we just go faster and faster and higher and higher like that. And I became aware of the fact that whenever I heard that from myself, whenever I heard it, I needed immediately to be quiet. And it wasn't a question of finishing the sentence, the thought, nothing. As soon as I heard that, whatever it was, it was wrong. Because I was not coming from any point of attunement, intuition, compassion, logic, nothing. It was my what I call my panic survival response, and I was desperately just trying to make sure that I didn't die. And, of course, nothing was at stake, just getting my way. But by definition, when we get off-center, part of getting off-center is that we lose our self-awareness. So that is, above all, what we're trying to be. Be fully conscious all the time. How about that? In the book of uh, stories about Swami Kriyananda, there's the story of when there was a realtor's phone number that, he, that Swami had seen on a piece of paper, but just glanced at the piece of paper, and half an hour later when they needed to call that number, Padma was looking for the number in the file, and Swami recited it from memory. And Padma just looked at him. How do you know that number? He said, well, I looked at it. She said, you glanced at it. Yes, but I glanced at it with full concentration. And then when I needed it, it was there. It's, very, it's a very interesting practice. Just, I mean, the, the most fun about the spiritual path is that you can be so busy all the time doing interesting things. You know, there's never a time when there's really nothing to do. You can always be deeply conscious of something. And the more, the more elevated that is, even just, where am I now? Where is my consciousness? One of the exercises from the Superconscious Living Course that uh, Swamiji wrote, I think Nita actually made up the exercise, I don't think it was in Swami's course, but he was talking about uh, conscious, subconscious, and superconscious. And he talked about it in terms of the gunas, tamasic, rajasic, sattvic, 
And Nietzsche had the idea that you have black squares and white squares. And you put all the black squares in one pocket. I think it's just black squares. And every time you realize that you've been unconscious, then you move one of the squares over and you see how many times during the day you've noticed your lack of self-awareness. Just a game to just help you recognize what it is that you're trying to do. But that's the great enemy of everything, is to just let our attention drop, isn't it? Okay? So that's, um, that's what Swami wants us to understand about Swadaya. Let me just see what else there is here. Um, and you know, analysis can also be sometimes... Well, I used to be extremely devoted to analyzing every little tiny thing I did. That was one of my encounters with Swamiji too because it wasn't working very well for me. And like many people, if you're doing the wrong thing, you think the only thing to do is more of it. You don't really get that the whole direction is off. It's just you think you're not doing it well enough. This is where, um, well, I guess that's called being crazy, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, I was so mentally engaged all the time in an unwholesome way and it wasn't bringing me what I wanted, so I just wanted to do more of it. And I was talking to Swamiji, and I said, this was like the summer of 1971, so I have an, a real excuse here. But I said, sir, I just feel like I need to improve my power of analysis. And in my memory, Swami actually rose from his chair, but I doubt if he'd actually moved. But I felt like he leapt toward me and said with a tremendous amount of force, no, just like that. And then very sweetly he said, why don't you work on devotion? Because all that, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? How am I doing it? Well, how is it going? It just, you just wrap yourself around yourself. And, and that's not self-awareness, that's self-preoccupation, which is very different. Self-forgetfulness is what we really want. But self-forgetfulness is not unconsciousness. We are aware on a higher level. And that's where karma yoga really works, that whole summer. That was my beginning of my training, is they put me, they, Swami, put me in the retreat kitchen at that point with an experienced cook who three weeks after I started with her, she left, and the whole responsibility fell on me. And as I've said to you, I cook three meals a day, six days a week, with one helper, and on the seventh day I would drive to town and get supplies. And I was so busy and loved what I was doing that for the first time in my life I didn't have time to think about myself. But I wasn't... I didn't have a lack of self-awareness. What I had was a lack of self-concern. And this is what Seva does for you. I was quite aware. I was working all the time. I I knew what was going on. I was very clear-minded. I was very conscientious. I just wasn't concerned about myself. I was too busy. And that's, what we're, that's why um, service is so helpful for us. Our mind is giving and therefore in much better shape. Anything else? Yes. Marilyn, be sure and hold it close enough to your mouth. You tend to forget. When, when you were um, very, very busy, if something out of the ordinary happened or you know, that kind of threw you off? Were you able to just go with the flow? Oh, no, I was a mess. (laughs) I mean, what do you mean? No, but I don't exactly know what the question is. Uh I've I've noticed that um, 
my my goal is is to be busy and be able to stay cheerful and even minded because I can be I can be busy, I can be doing getting a lot of things done. But if if anything goes wrong, like the computer something happens, then I then if I'm not really careful, you know that can just. Well, that's the challenge, and that's also why Seva, why hard work is why hard serviceful work is good for us because we do get to keep coming up against all of the issues. Yeah, it's, that's a that's a normal thing to have happen. It'll just never. What we're trying to learn to be is even-minded and cheerful, and we probably all have a distance to go, don't we? But you get boxed in by the necessity to accomplish, and it you have to push through your moods. You can't just collapse. So that you were able to do that. Oh, you know, with more or less success. I probably was better than I probably was both worth worse and better than I remember myself. I'm talking 1971, which you know was a while. I was generally a positive person, and I generally rolled with the punches. And I was also very volatile and confused. So both things were going on. I was remembering just for fun, as you said that we had at that time the kitchen was this white dome, and uh, it just leaked something terrible, so we put a big piece of plastic over it. It was, in 1971, we wanted to tear it down. They used it for another 20 or 25 years. And uh, everything was pretty primitive. You know, we were very new that time, and it was the middle of winter, and I was coming up to cook breakfast, so I was coming up at maybe 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. I'm not quite sure when breakfast was. And there was snow. There was a lot of snow at that time. And I'm hiking up in my bean boots and everything in the snow. And I look at this white building. And maybe it wasn't covered yet. I don't recall with the plastic. And I noticed for the first time this beautiful skirt of icicles that was from the platform, which was a couple of feet off the ground, just trailing over the edge all the way to where it met the snow. It was so beautiful. Early in the morning, and I stood and admired it and saw all the different shapes. And, and I wondered to myself, you know, has it been like this every winter day? Have I just been so unconscious I haven't seen it? And just with great admiration, I go inside and discover that the pri- a frozen pipe has burst and the entire uh, water tank, which was hundreds of gallons, has poured in the night into the kitchen across the floor, out between the dome and the platform, and created this exquisite skirt of icicles. (laughs) So we are totally out of water. There we are. You know, this this happened more often. This was a regular occurrence, but this was a unique moment. So I had to just, the only water, you know, I'm I'm very solution-oriented. I realized that there there were two big hot water heaters over at the shower house. So I just had to lug pots over there and fill them, open up the tap in the hot water heater and lug them back. And I just remember it as being just really a lark. You know, like, what can you do? It's just such a mess. And we used to have to... Uh, we, had, we didn't have a four-wheel drive truck. We had this truck, this brown truck. It was called St. Luke, which people thought that the man who used to drive it a lot, we called him St. Luke. And she was like, oh! Oh, is that St. Luke? No, actually, that's Santos. St. Luke is the truck. (laughs) They were very reverential toward this man. But the truck had no four-wheel drive, and it was that road up to the seclusion retreat, which was much much worse then. And um, people, 
we had no cars mostly, and we had to pick them up at the farm, so the back of the truck would be filled with people, and I'd come back from the shopping trips, and we just had to try to get up that hill, but it snowed a lot and rained a lot, especially in the snow, and you just, you usually could get about half or three quarters of the way up. And I was the driver of that thing, and I realized after a while that there was actually no danger because there were ditches, and when you finally went off the road, you just tilted over into the ditch. It wasn't, wasn't a cliff or anything like that. So it got to be really exciting. And you'd just try to get as far as you could up that hill because you would have to carry everything up the rest of the distance. And we'd just shoot up that, you know, holler to the back, hang on, and everybody would hang on. And we'd just go up and we'd go sideways and we'd go forward and we'd go sideways. And, you know, just boom, 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 like this. And then, pew, and everybody would have to just pick it all up and carry it. But... Why not? You know, it's all in your attitude. We had, I just loved it. Not everybody did. <laughs> it's going to be just, my first spiritual experience was, was being really impatient. This was before I found Swami, but just, I was 18, 19. I'm doing the dishes. The divine voice inside my head says, what's your hurry, honey? It's just one damn thing after another. That's like the first time God speaks to me, that's what he said. <laughs> because I was always wanting to be somewhere else. And I, I mean, I've always remembered that. I thought, well, you know, what do I think is going to happen next? It's just going to be one damn thing after another. I mean, that's really literally how it spoke to me. So when I find myself so frustrated, which I often am, I think it's just one damn thing after another. This is austerity, and austerity is patience. And benevolence. And benevolence, exactly right. I mean, I'm not perfect, believe me. And I keep soft objects that I can throw against the wall. You know, everybody gets impatient from time to time. But uh, I saw Swamiji once, we were trying to... This was when you... Uh, we were... We, uh, it's the only time I've ever heard Swami use a bad word. I had to stop for a minute and think if I can actually say this, but I can't. I think he did it half humorously. The way we had to edit tape then was you had to actually cut the tape and put it together. And I was working with something in his apartment in San Francisco, and I was always really nervous about cutting the tape. And, and, but he, he was doing it, and we kept doing it, and it kept not coming out right. It turned out we were cutting it uh, from the recording head instead of the playing head. You understand? So we were always just a tiny bit off. And first he said, Oh darn, oh fooey, oh rats, damn. <laughs> and then he said a really bad word. <laughs> Every time we put it in and it was wrong, we put it in. <laughs> then of course we just both dissolved into hysterical laughter, at which point we figured out what was wrong. <laughs> sort of, you know, it's all right. <laughs> Let's take a short break. <laughs> During the break, um, Tricia asked the question about the relationship between pain and devotion from the point of view of when, sometimes when physical pain is really distracting your mind, if you can surrender it more deeply with the point of view of if this is what you want me to experience, then I'm happy to experience it which is essentially, um, 
There's an exercise, and I have to just speak of these because so far in my life I haven't had to face this in any more than a small way, but in the small ways that I have, I have. Um, I know they talk about when you feel pain to, to concentrate in the center of it and just sort of offer that center of it into the light. The more you just feel like whatever is coming is really God's gift to you for his own peculiar reasons, Um, then at least you're not just thinking about your suffering, you're also thinking about God's presence in your life. You know, the Catholic tradition would always be to offer it for the sake of others. In the story of the children of Fatima, which is a very sweet story, they um, would suffer for the sake of sinners. And it's extremely Kali Yuga Catholic when you read it, but it's also extremely touching. These little children's willingness, and they would these three children who were having uh, two girls and a, bo- a boy, they were having these visions of Divine Mother and they were doing all this in secret. And they would often not eat their lunches or not take water when they were thirsty or kneel for long periods of time because Mary asked them to do austerities for the sake of suffering souls or souls that were in purgatory. I don't have the details quite clear in my mind at the moment. And they would. They would, And when... Uh, Two of those children died young, and when they were ill, and in fact dying, they, they took upon themselves that this was an act of sacrifice for the welfare of others. Um, that's always something that one can try. And if you think of it, um, I've always used this image in my mind. I mean, many a mother or father has actually prayed to God, take this illness away from my child and give it to me. And very rarely is that prayer answered. But the complete and honest actual willingness of a parent to just take it on so that someone else will be spared, one can at least sort of try to use those thoughts in a devotional way that if this is coming to me, you know, let me offer this willingly for the benefit of whoever needs it. And I don't know how that... Um, the metaphysics of that would work because Master says only very great souls can actually literally take on the karma of others. But that willingness to have your austerity um, be a blessing on the world, be a benefit to others, certainly helps one to be more benevolent toward what's happening. And or just whatever pain I've caused to others in the world. You know, I, I gratefully accept what you're sending to me now as, you know, help me to balance the scales of karma so that I can be free. And that's, I mean, when people are insulting you, as Swami said, take it calmly and aren't, uh, you know, people say the darndest things sometimes. Every once in a while someone will say something to me and I'll think to myself, if I wanted to be offended, my, my, I could be offended by that. Um, because we don't always know, we don't always mean what we say. We don't always realize what we just said, as I've been the um, I've been the sender of lots of things that have not been taken in the way that I would have wanted them to be taken. But you always think, well, this is okay. I must have dished this out, so it's coming back to me. There must be a lesson here for me, so help me to learn it. Whatever it might be, whatever it is you're trying to teach me, Lord, help me to learn it. If I don't know what it is, just help me to learn it. Swami once remarked, 
that uh, his enemies were really his enemies were more important to him than his friends because his friends were just spending his good karma where his enemies were working out his bad karma. <laughs> That's a convoluted reasoning that isn't exactly valid, but it was a fun way to think about it. So um, you've talked about the will of God and I'm trying to really understand. Is, so is everything the will of God? or What can you say about that? Well, there's different ways to look at it. Everything is karma. And therefore, everything is in an exact metaphysical relationship to whatever you have woven into the picture is going to the picture is going to be made of the threads you yourself have spun and then woven. So, in that sense, everything is interrelated, and no incident can happen that is in any way outside the pattern. If you think of of life as a tapestry, there's no picture that can be created over here that didn't begin over there. That's just the way it is. So that's one way to say it. The other way to say it is that all that that in everything that happens there is a benign omnipresence, a loving guiding force that is taking us from delusion to freedom. And every single thing that happens is a movement from delusion to freedom. And whatever is happening is part of that and God and guru are always there with us, we're never alone. I saw some very sweet cartoon, maybe it was even in one of our Ananda publications, where there's this sort of stair and the man is climbing the mountain and there's a gap in the staircase and the man is just climbing the mountain. But where there's a gap in the staircase, you see this divine hand holding his foot while he makes the next step. And it was so sweet, just carrying us through. And for the devotee, I certainly prefer to think about Divine Mother and Master helping me than just metaphysics. This is my karma. I use whatever works. So outside of the will of God is... We're never alone. Excuse me, because one thing I'm trying to do because I have a lot of physical challenges is to not get angry about it and accept it. And it's a big deal to have to do that, but it, it, whatever I can do, it's very good. I like well, you, it. you were just answering the question of benevolence, trying, to get, not, trying not to get angry and just to accept. Well, those anger is the opposite of a benevolent attitude, isn't it? So just having a benevolent attitude toward, here we are. Swamiji's body was so unwell at the end of his life. I mean, just, you know, he had full-time caregivers. He had two by the end. And, uh, you know, he was he was just so well he was cheerful about it, it was just how there it was called himself a tottering old man and he would he would make fun of himself tottering what could you do it was just the way it was um, Sarah's asking about the will of God and I remember some weeks back Saranya was asking a question somewhere along those lines and two things came to me both times different but the same one is that Swamiji tells that story about uh, Dickens when he is writing the story Little Nell and how uh, Dickens walked the streets of London sobbing because he knew that Little Nell was going to die and he was heartbroken. He was writing that story. And, and so that's Swami. And I know for myself, I mean, I know there's a reason Master has me with children for the past 20 years because over and over again, you get your chance to correct 
the, the wrong action you did a moment ago, but looking at is everything the will of God? And we all know this is how parents work with their children. It's like, oh, you so badly want to, you know, just today I was with a little boy and he's been coddled in his years at school. And I'm like, I said, Noah, you, uh, you just have to roll that sleeping bag yourself. And I'm walking away. Oh my goodness. I wanted to help poor little Noah roll up that sleeping bag, but I knew it was not going to help him. So I had to steal myself to stay on the other side of the room. And that's how God is with us. I think, you know, it's, well, gosh, I'd love to jump in and help you, but then you'll never learn. Exactly right. You know, that there's a, a beautiful, um, is it a letter from Master, or is it the poem? Maybe it's the poem, When I'm Only a Dream. And he, he said, I'll, um, I'll weep. Uh, the, the sense of it was, I'll weep, my eyes will weep, and sometimes I'll weep through your eyes. Meaning that he, he's touched by our suffering. He's not, he's not at all indifferent to our suffering. So it's not like he's heartless. And that was a, that's a very important part of just right attitude. It's, you, can be, you weren't heartless at all. You were very sympathetic. Sometimes, you know, it hurt, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And, you know, you don't really, a child doesn't believe that. But sometimes it really does. Because it is so easy to just do it yourself, but so wrong sometimes. So that's why, that's why we talk about God as Divine Mother and Heavenly Father. Because it's a graspable concept for us. And that's why it's a more powerful concept than just the law of karma. Because the law of karma, there's no... What do you, where do you go with that? There's nothing to do with your heart. But if you really think of Divine Mother and can at least imagine what a strong, wise mother or heavenly father would be, then you can project that and relate to that using all the, all the parts of yourself to get yourself into that story. And that's the benevolence. How can I be anything but grateful for what my Divine Mother sends me. And I've shared with you, but it's apropos to this, when Swami was having some terrible problem, a lot of very bad health problems, and some tiny thing went correctly. And I said, thank the Lord for little favors. And he was very stern with me. I'm grateful for everything Divine Mother sends me. Just like that. He wouldn't, he wouldn't let it stand even for a second. He was fierce about it. Matt, there's a story of Master the same way with Diamata protesting because Master was suffering so much in his physical body. Why does Divine Mother treat you like this? And Master said to her, don't ever speak against my Divine Mother, just as if she were his physical mother, and how dare you? I mean that, and that, those are not pretend attitudes. Those are, everything is going right. How dare you talk like that? You know, this is the, the being in creation to whom, whom I love the most and to whom I am most grateful so how can you be criticizing? It's, it's, these are very sophisticated attitudes. And these are not necessarily our first response. But we can bring ourselves to it. And we can extricate ourselves from our wrong responses with the right responses. Marilyn needs that. My, my, my impression is that um, I'm supposed to always be cheerful and even-minded. But maybe that's, maybe that's not right. But how do I reconcile a cheerful and even-minded attitude with being sad? You have to be sincere and you have to be authentic. You can't put on a happy... You can't, you can't pretend to be something you're not because God is not fooled. 
So on one hand, but you see, you need to know what you feel, you need to be unafraid of what you feel, you have to be authentic in your responses, and then you try to choose the best response, or if you haven't, or you just go as close to the best response as you can. And, and if you don't make it right away, you work your way back to it. For only one reason, you're miserable otherwise, and it doesn't help. It's nobody's making you do this. It's like, how, does it, how is this working for you? You know, if you're afraid of being sad, if you want to look good to other people, if you think you're being judged, if you're trying to fool everybody, that's lousy. Better to just sin enthusiastically in public, is how I used to put it. Just be whatever you are. But after you've indulged that, you ask yourself, how is this working for me? And then make your own decision as to whether this is working for you or not. So if, if somebody gets mad at me for being sad, um, I, don't, I can just, like, it's, it's, that's their problem? If somebody gets mad at you for being sad, where's that going to take you? Those are not your true friends. If somebody scolds you for not living up to your own potential, that's different. But there's no abstract answer to that. I mean, I was, you know, I, I was mostly out of control for a lot of years of my life. And I remember when I was Swami Kriyananda's secretary and I was having a pretty bad day. I don't remember what the context was, but I was in the master's market at Ananda Village and I was letting fly with some pretty intense words. I wasn't using bad language, but whatever it was, it was, it was loud and it was not attractive. And somebody said to me, you really shouldn't talk like that after all, you're Swami's secretary. Which I just can't stand that sort of thing. Did not, was not the right thing to say to me. So I said even louder and even more annoyingly, well, I am his secretary and I am behaving this way. Just get used to it. <laughs> it wasn't that I was right, but I also was not going to pretend. You know, what would be the point? Oh, yes, I guess I'd better behave like... I was not proud of myself. This is, you know, I've said this before. You know, a lot of the stuff we do, there's no reason to be proud of it. I'm not proud of it, but I'm not going to be ashamed either. It's just where I'm standing right now, and I'm not proud of it. I'd really like to be better. Well, the mistake is to think, oh, it's right for me to feel this way. No, if you're not even-minded and cheerful, you've got something to learn. But if you can't learn it right now, then you also just have to live there. But, the, but in truth, we should be even-minded and cheerful because we are disciples of a great master and we are loved by our divine mother and everything that happens is for our perfection and for our freedom. And any other perception of reality is a little off. And it won't work for us in the end. That's one of my friends said to me when I had a really lousy attitude. And how's that working for you, Asha? It's terrible. Oh, okay. Well, then maybe let's change it. Yes. I think it's also one of those things that's a continuum, maybe more than it might look like otherwise, because the more you practice being and identifying as even-minded and cheerful, the more it's still there even under the other stuff that happens. Like I remember I have a very good friend and she was the first person I ever felt like I knew who was really inherently happy. 
and I've seen her weeping her eyes out. And even then, I had, this was long before I was on the spiritual path, I had a very strong sense that this was a happy person who happened to be crying at the time. And it was very different from people who are completely identified with whatever's going on there. So it's not even that you're, like you can still have things like that happen, but still feel that underneath. I mean, even to the point where, you know, somebody like me can just see it and go, wow, that was amazing. I mean, that was a good lesson just to observe that in someone. You know, you've heard me say, but it's entirely apt to this, and you, you, you understand the nuances of these words. There are those things, those actions and attitudes that we commit, which may be that I'm sad, I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm off center. And then there are those actions and attitudes to which we are committed So I am committed to God remembrance, to gratitude, to austerity, to, you know, to ahimsa, to everything. That's what my commitment is. Sometimes I commit other actions, but I'm not committed to them. You see, it's all the difference in the world. My commitment is to what I know will take me where I really want to go. I commit other actions, and well, there they are. What are you going to do about it? Well, a lot, because that's transitory. This is ephemeral. This is who I really am. This was uh, when Jyotish was living in that dome that burned down that was just so full of leaks. And he had channeled all the water that was running into his house with with the dome. He had, had this huge funnel. Where he ever got it, I don't know. Most of the leaks were coming in from one section of this high ceiling dome, and he had the, he'd attached this funnel up there and he had all this tubing, and it ran down the wall, and then he had it stuck in the kitchen sink. And I came in there. We used to have these torrential rains, and it was one evening, and I went over to his house. This was before he was married, and I, I don't know why I went over in the evening to speak to him about something. He's sitting. We only had gas lights. He's sitting in a comfortable chair under this little gas light. The room is almost, the rest of the room is in shadow. This torrential rain is coming down. You hear it hitting the roof, and you also hear like a river running into the funnel all the way down like this. He's just, you know, sitting there, and the water's running over his head like this. I just, I said, said, my first response was, Jotish, how can you stand this? It just seems so crazy. And he just looked up from his chair, and he said, well, my attitude toward life is I, I can handle anything as long as it's temporary. And you know what? Everything is temporary. (laughs) So I've always remembered that. My bad attitude is temporary. Because sooner or later I'm going to get this right. And so, yeah, I'm having this, you know, I'm having a hissy fit right at the moment. I'll get it out of my system and then I'll go back to what I'm really committed to. And then you're easy about it. You've just messed up. You don't have a big complex about it. I've messed up. I go back to... And then when I'm, you know, when I'm done with my tantrum, I'll go back to being a good person again. But not today. (laughs) David once gave me an assignment I didn't want to do. And I was very upset. And he said, well, you don't have to do this. No, dear, that's the problem. I have to do this. That's what's making me so upset. If I thought I could get out of it, then I would just get out of it. So I'm going to have a little fit, and then I'm going to pull myself together, and I'm going to go do it. And that's just how you think about everything that isn't ideal. It's all temporary. And so is this class, because now it's over. Okay? (laughs) Thank you all.